election administration, election administration policymaking has been pretty reactive. We're always legislating on what the, the last crisis was. Um, and I think that that's limiting because if we spend some time thinking about what the next crisis could be and legislate ahead of it, maybe we don't have to have all the crises. The full and free exercise of our sacred right and duty to vote is more important in the long run than the personal hopes or ambitions of any candidate for any office in the land. You're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, an insider's look at election administration hosted by Brianna Lennon and Eric Fay. Hello, I'm Brianna Lennon, County Clerk for Boone County, Missouri. And I'm Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And you're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, a podcast where we explore local election administration. Today, we're going to be talking with Matthew Weil. He's the Executive Director of the Democracy Program at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we're going to be talking about Moore versus Harper, a case that's being heard this week by the United States Supreme Court, and it can have major implications about how elections are run and managed in the United States. So some background on this case before we jump into our conversation with Matt. Basically, this case was born from a redistricting issue in North Carolina where the state legislature drew a map and the state Supreme Court threw it out. The Supreme Court saying it violated the state constitutional ban on gerrymandering. Since then, the state legislature, or at least a number of them, have asked the U.S. Supreme Court to step in, arguing that under the independent state legislature theory, they, and they alone, have the right to make maps and election rules, and the state courts, governors, and even the state constitution can't get in the way. Folks are worried that if this theory is upheld by the court, election rules put in place by other means in state constitutions through ballot initiatives and administrative processes could be at risk. Since there would be virtually no checks and balances on state legislatures when it comes to elections. So it's a big deal to say the least. We spoke with Matthew at the annual Election Center Conference in August about the case being heard this week and its possible implications on elections administration and democracy as a whole. Since we spoke with Matt at the Election Center Conference, much has transpired, including the November election, which we talk at some length about during the interview. But we thought it would be most timely to have an episode focusing on the Moore v. Harper case as the Supreme Court is getting set to argue the case. Matthew, uh, who are you? What do you do? I am the executive, executive director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Democracy Program. The Bipartisan Policy Center is a think tank in Washington, D.C., um, and no, the Bipartisan Policy Center is not an oxymoron. So, Matt, what led you to being involved in elections? Obviously, the Bipartisan Policy Center does other things than elections, but you're focused mostly on elections. What led you to that, and what did you do before you were doing this? It's a good question. I, I've been around elections for a very long time. Started at a different think tank in Washington, D.C., at the American Enterprise Institute, um, was working on a project there after uh, 2000 election. It was actually a joint project between AEI and Brookings. And, and from there, I went to the EAC, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. So I, I was on the team that did the, the EVES before it was called the EVES. So I, I've been around elections for a very long time, and I, I've now been at, at BPC for 10 years. The EVES is probably the coolest thing in elections. It's a survey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might be worth mentioning that, you know, this was 
Hava did a number of things, as you well know, but it instituted the election administration voting survey, and it was kind of the first effort to gather at a national level in an official way data from all the 50 states and territories uh, to try to understand, you know, how many people are voting by mail, the number of provisional ballots, so on and so forth. Um, so that's kind of what it is. Is What was it like in the infancy of EVE's? Well, as, as many of your listeners probably know, the, the early EAC had, had struggles. I was there during the, the period where they didn't have any commissioners. So it, it was a lot of struggles. But I think the eaves, the, the focus has always been to take the fact that elections are awash in data. I mean, at their very, very core, elections are data, right? And use it to make better public policy, which is not, it shouldn't be a, a shocking idea. But I think for elections and, and policymakers that work on election administration, they were making policy without knowing how people were voting, how they were experiencing anything when they were voting. Um, and, and that was the beginning of trying to, to use evidence in the policymaking process. So I guess that is a good segue into what are you working on now to use data in the policymaking process? Well, I think now that we, we do use data, now that we do have evidence-based policymaking when it comes to elections, you know, BPC's elections project is very focused on connecting election officials, academics, policymakers at the state, local, federal level to think together. You know, for a long time, and especially when I first got into the field, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, election officials didn't see themselves as part of the policymaking process. They were administrators. They, they received the laws, and then they administered the laws. Um, that wasn't perfect because I think election officials have a lot of ideas for how to improve the process. Um, and now, now that they are seeing themselves as part of this kind of cycle of policymaking, um, I think BPC is very good at connecting people where they need to be connected in a bipartisan way so that the laws that do get passed um, have some durability with, uh, to them. So as the name implies, Bipartisan Policy Center, the center makes an effort to find bipartisan solutions to a host of public policy issues. I feel like, especially HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, uh, back in the early 2000s following the 2000 election, it by and large was a, a bipartisan compromise. Of course, you know, there was sausage making, not everybody agreed, but you know, it had bipartisan acceptance, I think, by and large. Right now, it seems like we're in an era where it's very difficult to maybe achieve something like that, but more recently, there has been some legislation introduced in Congress that has bipartisan sponsorship. So maybe can you talk to the people listening a little bit about the state of bipartisan election administration policy? I think it's easier to talk about it first at the state level, right? Because that's where most of the policy for elections is made. And by and large, you know, before 2016, I think, there were pretty clear trends in, in policy. There was the expansion of absentee voting. There was the kind of introduction of vote centers and early voting. And that was happening whether the states were more Republican or more, more Democratic. So that may have changed a little bit. There may be a little bit more of an R and a D or a red and a blue election administration at the state level. Um, but there clearly has been um, an evolution of how we vote in America that has, has been bipartisan. At the federal level, though, yeah, it's pretty rare, right? I mean, HAVA turns 20 years old this year. It uh, passed October 29th, um, or signed into law October 29th of 2002. 
Um, so it doesn't happen very often. When it did happen, it had more than 90% of the members of Congress voting for it. So it was clearly a compromise bill. And you know, there's been, there have been attempts since that have had some support, usually around military voting. But the, the big kind of comprehensive bill, that's pretty rare. Um, the Democrats had H.R. 1, they had S. 1, they had Freedom to Vote Act. Um, clearly, those were not compromise bills when introduced. And at least right now, we haven't seen a lot of movement in a bipartisan way. It doesn't mean there couldn't be. I, I think that the structure was probably wrong to get bipartisan buy-in. And, and that's kind of what BPC does, right? So back in January, we worked with four other think tanks from across the political spectrum. We worked with our, our task force on elections, which Brianna is a part of. Um, to think about what a more narrow, more focused, comprehensive bill could be. Um, and we laid that out there so that when, when policymakers are, are ready for that, um, there's something, there's a base they, they can work off of. So I guess kind of changing direction a little bit, but we had talked about it before. Um, you're looking past just, you know, the, the upcoming elections to more of um, the legal framework of how elections are. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about, I, I guess, your thoughts, but also about what you're trying to do to kind of prepare the elections world for a drastic reduction of voting rights and election rights coming from the federal level? Yeah, I think it's important to start focusing more forward-looking. Right? The, the past couple of years, pandemic, 2020 election, and all the craziness, election administration, election administration policymaking has been pretty reactive. We're always legislating on what the, the last crisis was. Um, and I think that that's limiting because if we spend some time thinking about what the next crisis could be and legislate ahead of it, maybe we don't have to have all the crises. Right? And so for me, uh, there are a couple of things that are, are coming that worry me and, and aren't getting a whole lot of attention yet, but actually hold the, the potential to be very disruptive or even destructive to how we view American democracy. And, and the one I'm thinking about most, the one that keeps me up at night, is um, Moore v. Harper in the Supreme Court, which at its core is a redistricting, redistricting case in North Carolina, but it's, it's kind of the way that independent state legislatures and, and that doctrine will be discussed by the Supreme Court and whether that's a real thing. And so very briefly, I'll say the independent state legislature's doctrine is this theory that state legislatures can do pretty much whatever they want on elections, irrespective of governors, irrespective of the state courts that might try to strike down their actions, irrespective of even state constitutions. This idea that the, the federal constitution gives the legislature itself solely the power to um, decide how elections are run in each state. I'm Eric Fade, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri, and you're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, a podcast where we explore local election administration. So why should election administrators care about that? Sounds very high-minded, this, a doctrine of any sort, like, what is the, how does that impact me if I'm just, you know, the guy counting ballots and recruiting poll workers? Well, I think the, the first thing I worry about is what might get invalidated right away. So if a state legislature has full control of the elections process 
and any of the policies that you're administering right now were implemented, say, by initiative, are those still valid? Because the legislature didn't do it. Um, and in many cases, in many states, I would say the legislature probably didn't want to do it if it had to be passed by initiative. Um, so that, that's one concern, just because this case would be ruled on most likely in June of 2023. At that point, we are 17 months out from a presidential election, and we could see kind of mass overturning of, of the way many Americans have voted for many years. The other problem, I think, for election officials, election administrators to think about is the practicality of a state legislature legislating on every single thing and being the ultimate decider of, of what everything means. Uh, I look at some states and their codes aren't great. In many cases, there are contradictory parts of the code. And, and that's kind of where in those states, the state courts have said, no, this is what's but this is what prevails, this is what, the, what should hold here, theoretically that won't be binding anymore and, and the legislatures can, can change things on a whim whenever they want to. Um, and so that's why I, I do think administrators need to really be following this case um, much more closely than they are, and not just administrators. I think this is a, a real threat to broader democracy. Um, the reason I say that is because theoretically, whichever party controls each state legislature the day that this this ruling comes down, if they're good at things like redistricting or, or passing laws to their benefit, they probably won't ever lose control of that legislature again in perpetuity. To me, that's not American democracy, right? And it follows from that, we could, we could end up getting very extreme, either liberal or conservative um, legislation in states that other Democrats or Republicans hold because they don't have a fear of losing anymore. Um, so this is why I do think there are many, many broader impacts to this, this court case, um, and, and people are right now only focusing on it as a kind of a narrow redistricting ruling, which I, I don't think that's how it's going to play out. Thanks for coming, Matt. That's the end of our jobs <laughs> as election administrators, so you know I'll get paid through next year, and I'll check out, and cool, it's been great talking to you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of associations, a lot of state associations for clerks and for, I guess, a lot of the local government um, positions are trying to build better relationships with their state legislature anyway. Do you see that that could potentially help in any way to, like, is that one possible avenue in trying to at least maintain some of the good parts of elections administration by building relationships with, with state legislators? Absolutely, if we consider the current kind of process, right, where before any kind of ruling, right? Um, I, I do think that administrators should always be part of the conversation when it comes to changing election laws um, because, and I, and I deal mostly with federal policymakers, and, and they have much more extensive staffs than state policymakers, and they don't know a whole lot about elections. So I'm guessing the average state legislator doesn't know a whole lot either. And, and they may be legislating on what they're hearing in the news or about other states that doesn't even really apply to them. And, and so I think that uh, election administrators do need to be organized. I think they need to be organized as a group kind of federally to talk about that, but also in each and every state. And I know this has been a hard thing for a lot of um, states to, to deal with and administrators in states to deal with, 
speaking with one voice. I, I do think it's helpful for administrators to give their perspective, but it's much more powerful if a collective group of, of state administrators um, within each individ individual state can give their perspective with one voice. Because then you kind of, you're not going to the, the policymakers with a bunch of different options. You're going with, we are speaking on behalf of the administrators of the state, and we want you to know this. It's not always going to work, but I do think in states where administrators have gotten frustrated because they're not seeing some of the recommendations they're making get into law, it's because they aren't going clearly, they aren't going the next step of, of maybe even officially lobbying their state legislatures to act um, in a way that they know is best for their voters. I know we just talked about, Matt, kind of the potential for the end of democracy here if the Supreme Court rules in a, in a, in a certain way. But there are other things BPC does and is working on. Uh, I'm hopeful maybe you can talk a little bit about that and you know some of the things you've put out, the recommendations BPC has made, uh, the outreach you've done to and with election officials and what you hope to achieve by it. Sure, yeah. I mean, there, there are any number of issues in the democracy space that we care about. And you know, I'm pleased that our team has grown to try to address the many, the many threats that we're seeing. On elections, like I said, I think we want to try to get ahead of policies that could become disruptive before they're kind of part of the, the public consciousness. You know, for example, in, in our first task force report, we had a whole section about Dropboxes. This was way before most Americans ever thought about Dropboxes. They weren't new in 2020, right? They'd been used before. We knew how to do that. Um, I think some of the things we're seeing this year are some changes to how states are doing uh, observers and challengers at the polls or where those observers and challengers may be allowed. Are they, are they allowed at the counting sites? Are they allowed at early voting? Are they allowed at the drop boxes? Um, so we're trying to get ahead of some of those challenges because we do think that's going to be a flashpoint this fall. We do think there's a lot to be discussed when it comes to electronic ballot transmission, which is you know law in some states for UOCAVA or, or military voters, but I think that could expand. Um, to include domestic voters with disabilities. Um, and while I know there's no consensus here, and I, I don't think that BPC has a consensus yet, I think the worst way to expand that kind of policy would be the courts ordering that policy to happen very close to an election and election officials being told they're going to do it but have knowing, no idea how to do it or no, no funding to do it. I think we have to be a little more proactive. We can't just say well, we didn't see it coming because I think we can see things coming. Um, and and that's, that's a lot of what our reports are trying to focus on um, this year, because I, I, I know certainly after 2020, I was doing a lot of interviews throughout the year, and a lot of what I was talking about was trying to preempt what, what could happen. And, and in December, when, when everyone was kind of writing up their years in review, you know, the most common question was, well, we never could have seen this happening. I'm like, well, I think we, we could have. If you, if you talked to an election official, they could have told you. And, and, and that has to change, because... Um, there's certainly a challenge right now with trust in our elections, um, and so we can't keep going from one crisis to another crisis after every, and it, it'll always be something new, but we can get ahead of some of these things. What do you think, um, I know you already mentioned that speaking with one voice is helpful. What do you, what do you think local election authorities can do right now to act in their own best self-interest in either protecting themselves for this or trying to be proactive themselves if they want to to help? 
I have all the respect in the world for local election officials, and now is probably not the time for them to be getting involved in policymaking, right? I mean, we are, what, 90 days ahead of a, a federal election So well, when we're recording this, so now is probably too late. But I, I do think there are any number of groups, BPC is one of them, but there are others that we're all friendly with that, that would happily connect anybody who has interest in policy federally or what our task force tries to do is take some of our task force members, which you know span 25 different states, and insert them into policy debates in other states because giving that perspective is, is helpful. So if you're an, a local election official and you have a perspective and you want to share that perspective, BPC's one, um, but find those groups that, I, that will help elevate your voice because there's no shortage of opportunities there. You just mentioned a task force. I think just backing up several steps here, it might be helpful to like talk a little bit about what is a think tank? Like, I mean, shucks, I'm just from Missouri and must be some big brain people that go to some building in Washington DC and just like link all their brains together somehow. How do you formulate the recommendations, the white papers, the reports you come up with and you know, who do you gather input from, from that, for that? Yeah, no, it's a great question and I think to, to take a step back, I think it's, it's very fair, right? So the traditional think tank, the think tank that's existed in DC for 100 years, that's the big brain kind of PhD scholars, somewhat like universities without students. They're, they're just, they're big professors. And the way it's, it's worked historically is they, they get some funding to do something and they write the report, maybe they'll talk to some experts, and then they present the report to the world and then they forget about it, and that's, that's it. That's the end of it. They've, they've done their job. That is not how the Bipartisan Policy Center operates. I, I don't think it's how many um, think tanks operate anymore. We try to be organically bipartisan. That's a little difficult on elections because, for the most part, a lot of election officials in this country aren't elected, and I don't know if they're Democrats or Republicans. So the way we, we get our, our organic bipartisan task force is we look at the jurisdiction that that task force member is representing. Is it a red state or a blue state if they're a state official? Is it a red state or a red uh, county or a blue county if they're a local election official? It's rough, but it's our best way of trying to make sure that we have good representation. The way BPC does this is we, we, so we bring our, our election officials together. We're going to bring academics. We're going to bring the, the vendor community. We're going to bring the various advocacy groups together. We're going we're to try to bring everybody who has a stake in the the discussion together into the room and actually have the conversations that we would love to, to see policymakers have if they had the time and the staff to facilitate them on their own. Policy development takes a very long time. And you know, you talk to a state legislator and they have 17 things they care about and not shocking, election policy isn't usually the top thing they care about. Most voters aren't election policy voters, right? They, they care about taxes, they care about many other things before they care about election policy. So we do the hard work of basically um, doing the research, showing where the trade-offs are on any kind of policy, and we put that out there. BBC then goes to the next step. We also, we do have a C4 lobbying arm, so we, we can lobby federally. Um, we have lobbied state level um, on certain things. We don't want the report to be written and then sit on a shelf. It doesn't do anyone any good there. We're going to promote it. We're going to advocate for those recommendations. And BPC does this on many issues, but my team um, certainly has now the capacity to be in several different states at one time.
You've been listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, a podcast that explores local election administration. I'm your host, Eric Fay, alongside Brianna Lennon. A big thanks to KBIA for making this podcast possible. Our managing editor is Rebecca Smith. Our managing producer is Aaron Hay. And our associate producers are Abigail Ruman and Katie Quinn. This has been High Turnout, Wide Margins. Thanks for listening.